Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 19th episode of the Mandarin Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my other co-host and best friend, Michael Hamilton. Michael, how many bulls would a wounded bull bull if a wounded bull could bull wounded bulls? I don't know. Three? Eight? Hmm. One of those, probably. Those are the main numbers on the card. I thought it was seven or eight. Uh, we ignore the seven. That one. That one's a... Well, I guess you're winning if it's seven. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this week we're just going to talk about the wounded bull, right? That's what we're just going to spend 45 minutes discussing the art of wounded bull, the power of the card, its adjustable power of the card, its defense value. How flexible it is. You know, sometimes you can spend three resources to attack for seven, and sometimes you can spend three resources to attack for eight. It just does so many things. Yeah. And what what's interesting is you can overpitch for it. So let's say you had a yellow pitch and a blue pitch. You could you could pitch the yellow pitch first with the blue pitch and you'd still have the two floating resources to play around things like ice react. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many, so many things you can do with this card. It really is an art to play the Wounded Bull. I believe it. That's I couldn't handle such mastery of the card. That's why I didn't include it in my list. And ultimately, <laughs> that's what cost me the tournament. Had I had I played Wounded Bull, I would have gone from fourth to first or third. Yeah. I don't know whichever one of those two I finish. Wounded Bull is quite good against the Guardians, you know, because because you you three for eight him, you just boom hit him. So efficient. I believe it. But for real, what we're going to talk about, obviously, is Michael Hamilton's Nationals winning Icelander deck and the decisions he made when building it, and then why I wasn't a firm believer in it, even though I had a whole extra day to completely register his list card for card and why I made the changes I did. And yeah, so this will just kind of serve as an Icelander deep dive in deck tech that everybody's been asking for. Yeah. So I guess to start it off, I'll go through the list, similar to our other. Okay, be sure to pieces. say how many of each equipment you play. That's important. Okay, it is important. It is important. Otherwise, people won't know if there's one. Maybe there's three winning moons. Who knows? Could be. So, <laughs> in the Ice Center deck for equipment, there's Waning Moon, Alluvian Constellus, Coronet Peak, Crown of Providence, Final Spring Tunic, Ironhide Gauntlet, Metacarpus Nodes, Nolvern Hood, and Storm Striders. I just realized Metacarpus Node is singular. There's only one node, not several nodes oh i always thought it was nodes yeah it's just node at least according to fab db at red there's three aether ice vein three enlightened strike three findles fighting spirit three scar for a scar three sink below and three wounded bull at yellow there's one findles fighting spirit and at blue there's three aether hail three aether ice vein three amulet device three blizzard three brain freeze three brothers in arms three channel lake frigid three cold snap three emeritus scolding Two energy potion, three frost hex, three frosting, one heart of find all, three hypothermia, three ice bolt, three ice eternal, three insidious chill, three polar blast, and one scour. Did you ever board in a scour at any point in time? Yeah, I played against old time. It's a blue block three. <laughs> I did I did not play against any viscerize or any drum eyes though, which are the main matchups it's there for. It's just more utility out of your blue block three than a lot of the other options, like blue ice bind or blue winner's grasp aren't great. What about that all you got? You gotta play that card. That's a yellow. But I think that card is solid. Oh, it's- I think I meant this round's on me. I always get those two cards mixed up for some reason. Oh, yeah. It's like, that all you got on me? You know, something like that. I think if I knew Phi was going to be as much of the field as it was, I would have definitely tested this round's on me. But by the time Phi was like picking up in popularity, I didn't really have basically any time to test the week leading up to Nationals. So all my testing was like the few weeks before that. So uh, I didn't really 
get a chance to try this rounds on me because again, I didn't I didn't think it was particularly good against the Rune Blades and I didn't know if I was gonna be anywhere near as popular as it ended up being. Yeah, I just thought about that card because since we usually talk about it so much on the cast, but against Kadachi Fi in particular, it seems like pretty sweet tech. Yeah, even against the other version of Fi, it's I still I still think it's pretty good. They usually go three or four attacks wide, and it also helps a lot with hitting those four power breakpoints that you can really struggle to hit. Yeah, those four power breakpoints were ultimately why I played the extra three defense reactions, the three sync blows, instead of mm-hmm. the... No, not through, three sync blows, obviously, but the three paper scenes that weren't in your list. You had the brother-in-arms, but I just didn't like the fact that it always required the resource. Yeah, I guess that's... <laughs> The reason I got to Brother at Arms was to hit those four power breakpoints more often. And also, I found myself very frequently just floating this tunic resource for several turns. And I'm like, if I'm just if it's just sitting there for multiple turns, it's not that unlikely to just draw the Brother at Arms with the tunic resources sitting there and get like pretty good value out of it. Yeah. That was my thought process for Oasis Respite. And then that card always just wound up being horribly clunky. So. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem with Oasis Respite is that it is a red that doesn't block when you don't have the tunic resource or a way to create that extra resource. So you basically are forced to have a resource for it. Whereas Brother in Arms, if you don't have a resource for it, it's still a blue and it blocks two, which you it's usually not don't zero. do. Yeah, two is much better than zero, but you, you still are a pretty blue hungry deck. Like all your wounded bulls, all your final fighting spears, your aether ice veins, they all take a blue to pitch. And even just pitching at the coronet peak is usually fine. Yeah, that makes sense. You even attacked with it a couple of times, I heard over the weekend. <laughs> Those were not the. Those are not his finest moments, but uh, I did attack with it a few times. I think there was twice in one match that I ended up attacking with it just because that was just the way the hands lined up and my opponent wasn't pressuring me enough that I could spend cards defensively and it was the only thing I could do with two cards, really. What was the matchup? I th- oh, gosh. I believe it was my... It was one of the Icelander beers, but I'm not positive. That makes sense. I would... I, I would ass- I, if you would have put a gun in my head and said, what matchup would you have ever attacked with a blue brother in arms with? The mirror makes the most sense. Yeah. Also like in the mirror, since you don't want to deal like this really small amount of arcane damage because the discharges their alluvian, it is better than just passing the turn doing nothing. I felt like so, but yeah, we can get into that a little bit here. So obviously the beat em up wounded bull version of Icelander is just completely favored into the, previous builds of Icelander that only dealt damage through Arcane. Yeah, I, I think that's just basically a fact. Playing the attack actions means you just have more ways to present damage without charging their Alluvian. And the attacks, again, they're just so much better on rate. And Arcane damage into a deck with AB4, AB5, and 40-plus blues is not exactly the best recipe to beat them. So these attacks trade more card efficiently than your, than the spells do. And on top of that, they don't charge Alluvian when they're defended. So I think playing these attacks just makes you super favored in the mirror. Yeah, that was my winning in for the calling top eight where uh, I got paired into the mirror and I had not as many attacks as you did, but still more attacks than obviously traditional Icelanders did. So cards like Enlightened Strike and Bind Elves Fighting Spirit and even Command and Conquer were just fine ways to present damage and threats without, like you said, charging the Alupin Kinstels, which was really important. And in the mirror too, there's even going to be times where you're going to arsenal a red card just because you're just not always going to have a lineup where you can just always arsenal a blue. So in those instances, CNC actually is very relevant as well. 
Yeah, and even in the spots where they can play their arsenal out in response, CNC, the fact that it costs two isn't as big of isn't as big of a downside because you don't waste the resource a lot of time in the mirror because you can use that one floating resource to pay for arcane barrier or yeah, basically just pay for arcane barrier. Or if your opponent has a channel like frigid out, you can still just it's still an attack that you can just play by pitching one blue. Whereas if you're playing Wounded Bull or Find Elves Fighting Spirits, obviously you can't just get away with that efficiency at that rate. Yep. Agreed. hundred percent. So that never came up for you though? Just the any, any taxing event effects for your three cost cards? Because I think Channel Lake Frigid timing in u- utilizing that card is just one of the most impact- important factors for the edge. For in the, the mirror. mirror. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of my opponents cast the Channel Lake Frigid and the wizard that's least, crazy no i i don't know if that's true actually i think i think there may have been a channel like frigid and play at some point i i don't remember perfectly though that's fair there were a lot of turn cycles that you had over the course of the tournament so it's not fair to expect you to remember every single one of them yeah but it's just a card it, i very much prioritize just because it makes me feel so safe particularly in the mid and late game where I just know my opponent's not going to get too out of line with presenting just a lot of damage, just because even a lot of Icelanders, well, Icelanders other most threatening card, Aether Icefane, also costs three, so it also becomes difficult to cast that card at that point in the mirror. And then cards like Insidious Chill and turning off energy potions or making energy potions wildly less efficient or their tunic, just, I don't know, just that sense of, having them be your deck but worse when you have a channel like Frigid in play i think it's really impactful yeah i think one thing that isn't super intuitive is that ice eternal it basically is one big spell that spends all of your resources so you would think that channel like Frigid wouldn't be that good against it but a lot of the time that you play your ice eternal you want to be sacrificing your energy potions and sacrificing your amulets to life in the same turn and all of those actions cost one resource and suddenly your ice eternal looks really bad under a channel like Frigid too so I, yeah. think, I think it is quite good in the mirror. Absolutely. It was a card that I used to great effect uh, in the two mirrors I played in, in the tournament. But it wasn't just all mirrors for you and I, though. So uh, what other matchups do you uh, did you play across the weekend? It's actually a little bit sad that I think I only played against Phi, Oldheim, and Icelander the entire weekend in Classic Constructed. Mm, you should have joined me in the calling. It was wild over there, man. Yeah. I played against... Uh- Two Viscerai, two Rhinar, a Dorinthia, a Briar, two Dromai, two Bravo, and an Oldheim, I believe. That's a that's a lot of heroes, a lot of different heroes you played against. Yeah. The Oldheim was hundred percent because it was Isaac Crute and he was the he beat me twice in the tournament, unfortunately for me. <laughs> but apparently yeah. if he was not as good into the Oldheim mirror, I wish he would have hit an Oldheim mirror in round one of top eight because then I might not have faced him. He had he, he got to face the Rhinar in the first round of top eight. But I can't complain about how that broke out because I got to face the Viscerai in the first round of top eight. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Viscerai, I think that might be the best matchup for this deck. Yeah, it's just not close. All of Viscerai's damage is become so inefficient when we get to have Alluvian Kinsella. So every time we Arcane Barrier his rune chance, we just are netting resources basically yeah it becomes like a why are you hitting yourself kind of a deal where it's like he's presenting damage but the damage turns back onto him yeah and then on top oh go ahead 
I was going to say on top of that, it also lets us just like efficiently use our resources however we want during his turn. Similar to how old times are generally pretty good into Viscerite that they can like crown however they want because they have no rune boots for eating the rune chance. We have a bunch of like random blue cards we want to play from Arsenal and it's very nice to be able to just spend our floating resources to Arcane Barrier, the rune chance, and then we can, if, if it turns out that it's not going to be a good turn to Waning Moon, maybe they're ending the turn with one or two resources floating, then we can just spend our resources to Arcane Barrier more instead of fire the Waning Moon off. So it makes the matchup very good for Icelander. Yeah, and we just naturally get the AB2 for Rosetta Thorn because of Storm Striders, where a lot of decks not, normally can't ever block that damage, where we just kind of get to soak it up for free if we want yeah. to. Our best equipment is also just very good against uh, Rosetta Thorn. So, And then the final na- nail in the coffin, I guess, here for the Icelander V Viscerai is the fact that Icelander is still just pretty naturally good at disrupting her opponents just with the frostbites, taxing effects, insidious chills, hypothermias, these kinds of effects. And those are all things that Viserai hates having done to him. <laughs> he has to play Mavrin Skies every turn in order to give his attacks go again. So if they go Mavrin Skies and you play hypothermia and they're just like, hmm, I don't get to swing Rosetta Thorn anyways, even if I wanted to, my turn's just over. Or they play a non-attack action and they go swarming gloom bale and you hypothermia them and their turn's just over and you just feel <laughs> good about yourself mm-hmm. and then speaking of frostbites for all the reasons stalagmite is very good against viscerai icelander's hero ability is extremely good against viscerai and we can even time it between the non-attack actions so like against old time if you attack maybe you go mauve shrill have one resource floating or something and they don't stalagmite you then like you always felt safe to cast your revel rune bloods knowing that they couldn't like give you a frostbite between revel and swing with rosetta thorn but there's no safe windows against icelander as long as she has a card in arsenal you're always vulnerable to that frostbite yeah that's just one of her inherent powers it's just so good just to always make your opponents not know when that tax effect is going to come in either so they kind of have to go through every permutation of how they're playing their hand out to figure out at what point their turn can just end because of that extra frostbite. Yeah. Yeah. But I think something you said well, at the start of that conversation or maybe in the middle, but you said storm striders was the best piece of equipment. Could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So basically when you're playing Icelander, you're kind of like you start the game behind and you're playing this like value game where you're just trying to keep up in damage with them. You're trying to disrupt their big turns and also just like present kind of fairly consistent damage back at them with the attack actions and waiting mid on their turn as the main ways you deal damage. And your goal basically at the end of the game is to not be more than a few points of life behind them because between your hero power and storm striders, you can present a pretty significant amount of instant speed damage. So if they expend their hand trying to kill you or finish you off, you can, between storm striders and your hero power again, you can deal around like 10 damage usually to them on the last turn so if without storm more if you're trying to do like frost text end game combo stuff as well too yeah, yeah yeah definitely more with frost text end game combo stuff but that thread that you have at, at the end of the game where if your opponent doesn't hold back blues or hold back resources that you're just going to kill them from like eight to ten life is very powerful and I think Icelander would be significantly worse without Storm Striders. Yeah. If it wasn't for Storm Striders, I actually would have lost my match, or at least drawn my match with Fino, where time was literally about to be called. And because of Storm Striders and Metacarpus node, I was able to 
chained together just like nine points of arcane damage. And mm-hmm. he didn't have enough. He, he had two reds left in his hand at the time. And that was just, just enough I needed to get across the finish line and end the game. And just having that reach that's ever looming at the end of the game is just insanely powerful. Yeah. And it's crazy that I think Storm Shredders aren't as good in Icelander as they are in Kano, but they're still so good. Yeah, because, well, I guess the weird thing that comes up with them, though, is there's never a time before the end of the game where I think it's right to pop Storm Striders. And I actually made this mistake against Kroot in my semis match against him, where he was attacking me with an Oganold, and I had two red Aether Ice Veins in my hand. And I was already at sub around 20 life at the time, and I just knew that because he's just such such more aggressive version of old time, I was never going to see those red Aether Ice Veins again. So it was kind of like, use them now or forget that they exist in your deck. And I wound up popping mm-hmm. Storm Striders to just deal like, I think I got across like, 10 points of arcane damage or maybe not 10 but like so it's the five plus the three plus whatever i had in my arsenal it was i think it was an emeritus scalding so that's mm-hmm. another four so that's 12 presented and i think he mitigated four uh, so i got eight sure. yeah eight points of arcane damage across to him in exchange for taking the nine on the Oakenold. but then at the end of the game i just couldn't have that reach and when Icelander just can't present that damage, he feels wildly different at the end of the game. Yeah, for sure. Having just having so much burst at the end of the game is I feel like why the deck works. And also once you kind of use your Storm Strider's burst turn, it kind of turns off your fighting spirits and wounded bulls and scars for scars for a while. I guess you were you were on less copies of those cards, but part of why, in my opinion, the deck works is because you can still be lower than life than your opponent and winning because of your eight to 10 points of reach that you consistently have at the end of the game. Yeah. And that creates really weird game states where in the mid game, you could be down by like, I think against one of my Reinars, the score was like 16 to 38 or something like that in the <laughs> mid game. And I still won that game. by just like mm-hmm. figuring out ways to chain together spells in really efficient ways with combined with insidious chill. And then just that, last turn burst of just storm striders arcane damage out of nowhere and that came up in our testing too because i remember when we were testing in one of our games where i was ahead by like 20 life or something like that and i just stopped the match and i was like how behind do you feel right now because i feel like significantly ahead and you're like i don't feel that bad about this match or this game and then you wound up winning that game (laughs) i believe i said i was slightly behind and then the next turn you fused Oakenold, and then i was like i think i'm reasonably behind and then i barely won the game in the end yeah, but it was still crazy that like you were able to win that game in testing when I was just so significantly ahead at the time. Mm-hmm. So what is Icelander's bad matchup? <laughs> that's that's a good question. Um, I honestly didn't get a test enough into Briar. I thought that matchup might be kind of tough, but thinking about it more and more, I am not sure that matchup's actually bad, especially getting access to three Blizzard, three Hypothermia, and having just like a lot of efficient blocking cards too. I thought that I think we have enough disruption for the channel Mount Heroic turns that it'll be hard for Briar to have a crazy channel Mount Heroic turn. And then well, that, on top it, of that, a lot of Briar's cards don't block super efficiently. And it's not too hard for Icelander to just play some amulets of ice out and just sit on them until a channel Mount Heroic comes out. And then you can just fuse anything and strip 
every card out of your opponent's hand on the follow-up Chatham Out Heroic turn. And you can even do it on your turn to prevent them from being able to have multiple Earth cards on their turn in their pitch zone to keep it around. So Briar is actually like, I don't think it's insanely good for Icelander overall, but I think it's still definitely Icelander favored. Yeah. I think, I also think Fi and Oldheim, I don't think either of those matchups are like great for Icelander. I don't think, I wouldn't say that she's behind or like significantly behind either of them. And I think like a lot of the advantage I had in the tournament was because people didn't know the deck more than because the deck was like a significant favorite into those matchups. But sometimes your cards need to line up reasonably well against theirs and they, if, and you can just die to some of their best draws if you don't have the correct cards for those situations. Yeah. I think there are only two, well, ironically, they're my two, uh, deck losses across the tournament that I felt were significantly bad for me. One was Dromai, and I did beat Fino on Dromai, but it was early in the morning, he was sleepy, you know, the sun was in his <laughs> eyes, his little brother was actually playing the deck. There are probably a million reasons why uh, I actually won that game. But the second time I played Dromai on day two, my opponent had two Thamais on the battlefield at one point in time with an Asvali and an Uvia, and then there was the third... And then you're talking about the Dominion. It was just all, it was just, it was just everything that could possibly go wrong for me in that matchup just started going wrong in the mid game. And mm-hmm. it felt real bad. <laughs> yeah. Three, three Thamise is a lot of Thamise. And I think that Dromai can definitely be built in a way that'd be pretty favored against, or at least recently favored against Icelander between Thamise, Sand Covers, and just like a lot of efficient attacks. You don't. I, I don't actually think like the the Ash Wings and the Dragons are that good against Icelander because of how easily disruptive they are. But Thamai specifically, Thamai, Chromai, and the her defensive tools, I think, can give Icelander a lot of trouble. Yeah. And then the other match was Isaac Kroot's balls to the wall, punch you as hard I, as I possibly can in the face old time that the more I look back on it, the more I'm like, maybe if I just pivoted my strategy, it might not have felt so bad. But in the back of my mind, I still was so used to getting to at least second cycle against Oldheim pretty consistently. But when Oldheim's on, Rouse, Zella's Belting, CNC Pummels, uh, Red Glacials, Red Mot, like it's just too much damage that he can present or that version of the deck could present that actually prevented me from getting to second cycle consistently and i should have just tried to pivot to just more disruptable game plan at that point because a lot of those cards that i just mentioned are red and so i feel like if i just started to try to just play more of a tempo game with like just fusing insidious chill or fuse effects with insidious chill in the mid game to start to strip his hand a little bit more or just be more aggressive with my my channel like frigids in the early game or mid game that Maybe there's worlds where I win more games against that version of the deck, but at the time it just felt horrendous. Especially CNC Pummel that like can hugely punish uh, Icelander in certain spots. Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that you can do against that. First, I think like Zealous Belting and Rouse the Ancients are pretty efficient, but they aren't more efficient than like Fiendel's Fighting Spirit or Wounded Bull because they're just like similar levels of efficiency and same well, for Scar first Scar. They do those things, but then they follow it up with the six power hammer attack. Right, 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 right. And I'm I'm saying like Zealous into Sledge is three cards for eleven damage, and Wounded Bull plus a block three is three cards for eleven, right? If you're behind. 
Right, 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 right. But that's kind of like the premise of the deck is you're playing Icelander, you're always going to be behind unless the game's already decided. So you kind of can match them in efficiency. And then the turns that they don't have the Zealous, then their Sludge isn't nearly as efficient because Sludge is usually two cards for six. And then the other thing is you brought up CNC Pummel, which especially off a Tunic counter is the most efficient play probably in the game is just CNC Tunic Pummel off of blue. It's just like the most powerful two-card combo, at least, I think. Yeah, we agree. getting both having Crown of Providence, so you can play around that when you don't have, when you have a red in your arsenal or a blue that you don't want to play is, in my opinion, very important in those matchups. And then also, if you are able to give them a, you can give them a Frostbite in response to them activating their tunic, depending on uh, what card is in your arsenal as well, which is another way you can kind of hedge around that. If yeah, on the that just never lined up time. in that way for me. I just, whenever I was being attacked in that position, there was just two cards in his hand. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of that stuff. And I wasn't on Crown of Providence, so shame on me, I guess. And that also even punished me even harder for playing the three extra Fate for Scenes. Not that Brother in Arms would have helped all that much more in that situation, because obviously I can't respond to it. And it just felt like a situation where I felt damned if I do, damned if I don't. Because if they're playing cards like Oak and Old or Red Glacial or uh, you know, using a zero for four on a Zealous Belting into a block three on a hammer, you're leaking four points of damage, but that's not that fast of a clock. Um, but then when those CNC pummels pop up, you just get hugely punished for trying to play those really effective and efficient defense reactions. Yeah. And that I think that really just speaks to how powerful and efficient Old Hem can be. The fact that you can play him so aggressively and so defensively, and he has like pretty good tools for basically whatever role you're trying to fill is I think why Old Hem is doing so well and has so consistently been doing well is we've seen Old Hem do well with these more defensive tanky versions where they're blocking a bunch and swinging winners well most turns. And then we also see Old Hem doing really well with these very aggressive decks as the meta became more defensive, cared less about on hits and more about just like raw numbers. Old Hem can still compete in these kind of games as well. Yeah. But I guess that just leaves us in a two deck format then almost between Icelander and Oldheim, where neither deck really has any horrendous matchup. Now they're both slightly maybe unfavored into Dromai, but I think that's about it. And I really don't know what heroes are left to really, you know, pose a challenge to these two relevant ice heroes. I would say the relevant the the ice heroes, but there's poor Lexi sitting over there. So well she gets she'll have her time, <laughs> but just not right now. Poor Lexi. Well, I think there's a couple places to look. So like you said earlier, I think Dromai, you can build Dromai in a way that's like probably at least reasonably favored into Icelander. And I think you can also build Dromai in a way that's reasonably favored into some versions of Oldheim, maybe not all versions of Oldheim. But the versions of Oldheim that are reasonable into Icelander and Dromai are not the versions of Oldheim that are beating up the aggro decks. They're not the ones that have a 70% win rate against Briar. They're not the ones that beat up Fi all the time. So when, once Oldheim adjusts to attack these other slower decks like Icelander and Dromai, I don't think Oldheim will kind of bully the aggro decks the way he has. And then one other deck that did really well at US Nationals was uh, Jacob Baugh's Dash deck. And I think that deck just like smashes Oldheim. Like that matchup seemed really bad for Oldheim. And I think if it has a reasonable Icelander matchup as well, that's another deck that you could kind of bring in to attack these two top of the format decks. Yeah. I was glad you didn't have to face Jacob Ball in the finals. I didn't know how that would have played out, I guess. Yeah, I I like Jacob a lot. And 
I hope he always does well at tournaments, but I was also happier to play against Fi than the dash that I really didn't even know exactly how I should approach that matchup. Yeah. Have you even, have you played Icelander V dash at all? I have played zero games of that matchup of any version of dash. So would have been tough. So I guess we've kind of talked about specific matchups, but I was thinking maybe we should talk about some of the card choices we have in the deck. So I guess I read off my list. What did you play in your list? Do you want to go through it? Yeah. Let me pull up. So in my list, in Roger Bodie's third place, third place, it's not fourth place, it's third place Icelander deck. <laughs> same thing. It's one place higher. Third and fourth, <laughs> same thing at a single elimination top eight. But go ahead, go ahead, I'm ready. Tell me about, tell me your deck. I had one Alluvian Constellus, one Coronet Peak, one Findles Spring Tunic, one Ironhide Gauntlet, one Metacarpus Node, one Null Rune Hood, one Stormstriders, and one Waning Moon. At red, I had three Aether Hail, three Aether Ice Vein, three Command and Conquer, three Enlightened Strike, three Fate Foreseen, three Freezing Point, three Findles Fighting Spirit, and three Sink Below. At two pitch, I had yellows in my deck. I had three Aether Ice Vein. And then at blue, I had three Aether Hail, three Aether Ice Vein. This says two Emulator of Ice, but it should definitely be three Emulator of Ice, three Blizzard, <laughs> three Brain Freeze, three Channel Lake Frigid, three Cold Snap, three Emulator Scolding. Two energy potions, one frost. Th- sorry, three frost X, three frosting, one heart of fine gall, three hypothermia, three ice bolt, three ice eternal, and three insidious chill. So it sounds like the biggest differences between our lists were in the reds. No, the biggest differences in our list are between our yellows because it's infinity percent between the differences between our yellow. Sure. Cards. I, I have, well, I have one. I have one final. Oh, sorry. It's, it's a three hundred percent. I'm playing in. three times the amount of yellows you are. Yeah. So yellow Aether Ice Vein, huh? You think it's good enough? Yeah. I think we just play the deck differently. <laughs> Even when I'm playing the beat-em-up version, I mostly use the attacks, uh, obviously, to tenderize, as you famously call them now, my opponent and get their <laughs> life total low. But I also use... I Even when I'm playing... Like this more aggressive version, I pretty aggressively set up Amulet of Ice and Insidious Chills because I think Insidious Chill might just fundamentally be a broken card, especially in Icelander. I think Icelander makes it the most broken. It's kind of reasonable if you're not playing at instant speed, but the fact that Icelander can't always, always has this instant speed looming threat of not only not only just with blues in our arsenal, but as we were talking about before, with Stormstrider taking out cards from your opponent's hand during like key sequences or key turn cycles, it's messed up. <laughs> yeah. I- so I just wanted as much security and making sure that I was getting those ice fuses off. And that's also why you see the three freezing point ultimately in my list to where it's mostly a combo card, but it's also a card I was pretty happy to play just as a five for three ice fuse, just because you can't arcane barrier if you don't have any resources and insidious jill and amulet i say no no resources sure that that makes sense i think one thing i was realizing as i played more and more of my list was that when i played insidious chill because i only had the three red aether ice veins that i really wanted to cast and then i had some fine like blue fusion cards like uh blue aether ice vein and brain freeze and ice eternal but none of those were cards that i was like i really want to cast these so 
I was noticing that when I was playing Insidious Chill, it would be pretty hard to get three counters of value out of it a lot of the time. So I almost, I very rarely cast them unless I didn't really have anything better to do. Oh, uh, so. yeah. Or I was like, I wish this thing had like 18 counters. I would, I was just fusing left and right in, in my deck. <laughs> and that's just, that's just three more Aether Ice Veins that made the difference, huh? Yeah. Yellow Aether Ice Vein. Ultimately, if you're playing him with Insidious Chill, there's not a big difference between four and five because it's just going to be mostly unblockable damage anyways at that rate. So any turn cycles where you're just you're just stealing turn cycles at that point in the middle of the game, and it makes it easier for you to finish off your opponent because if you, you know, you could have any blue ice card that you're fusing Aether Ice Vein with. If after you've stripped your opponent's cards out of their hand, you go to their turn, they still don't have cards in their hand. So you're just free to play whatever you want and Waning Moon them and just dome them for like, you know, anywhere from zero, from three to like six arcane damage if it's uh, blue Aether Hail that you, or Aether, no, what's the two for three? Ice Bolt. Ice Bolt, blue Ice Bolt that you, you fused with. So. At that point, that's just like 10 arcane damage and six of which they can't do anything about, which is very, very strong. Yeah, that makes sense. I I feel like there is kind of a big difference between four and five damage on a card. It's like one damage is like roughly a third of a card, maybe a little bit less in constructed, but it is a pretty big difference to go down that one damage. And I was finding that I was never really using yellows for resources. Basically the... Oh yeah, I treat them the same as red. I basically like... And when making sideboarding decisions, I treated them exactly as though they were red cards in my deck at that point. Okay. Because I, I was going to say, the way the cost curve of the deck is really set up is basically everything costs three or zero. Even like Polar Blast and Cold Snap, it's they cost one and then you need two more to wand afterwards. And it was really, really, like, it's really, really hard to get two thirds of a blue pitch of value out of a yellow pitch, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Most of the time, if I was pitching it, I would use it in combination with the tuna counter to get a three pitch. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That does, that does build your own blue. Yeah. A yellow plus a tuna counter. So that's why I was like very low on yellows in general. And I didn't play, I basically didn't play any all weekend. I had the one finals fighting spirit in the deck for Dromai because I wanted the seventh popper, but, I never actually played Dromai, so I didn't get boarded in. Yeah. And then I think a lot of... So I I did try to mirror a lot of your list in my list when making these decisions. So like, whereas you had Scar for a Scar, I had Red Aether Hail because it blocks for three. It's another ice card since I'm trying to ice fuse a little bit more often. And I liked having the extra ice card in order to keep Channel Lake Frigid around a little bit longer since I was also mm-hmm. seemed to be a little bit higher on that card than you were on the weekend as well. I played it a few times, especially in the finals. Yeah, that's fair. And it was also just yet another card that just let me... I think the vast majority of the time, I just would just keep two cards in my hand. Uh, The blue I wanted to arsenal, and then this red Aether Hail when my Tuna Counter was up. And I would just like Tuna Counter Aether Hail get get some chip damage in. Because nobody ABs Aether Hail in the matchups you're playing it in. Because I I wouldn't (laughs) play it into like... If I knew a deck was going to play like AB two or three plus like into old time like i'm not playing red aether hail but like into the aggro decks or like the decks where you just want more efficient like chip damage in order to get the game over a little bit faster that those were and those are also the matchups where you want to keep channel like frigid and play longer and you want a block three so that's kind of why i went with red aether hail and i was i was happy with it i would i would play red aether hail again 
Sure. That makes sense. I was not, I guess they blocked two. So obviously I wasn't blocking very often with them, but I think like even the reds that block three, like in light and strike and either ice vein, I was very hesitant to block with them because you don't have that many good red options for power cards. Like I think I feel like I was kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel coming at getting like wounded bull and scar for a scar in here. And like, like even playing what I think in my opinion is all like this, the pretty efficient red options. I still only have 15 and there's, I'd almost always rather just like play one at Arsenal, another one than not have a, then just block with the red block with the extra red, because then the next turn when you draw, draw and you don't have a red, it's hard to have something proactive to do. That's crazy that we play the deck so differently. I blocked with or I blocked with reds all the time. I was just like, oh, it's not a blue. It doesn't line up well. I can't I have two reds in my hand at this point in time. Just get out, get out of here, red. I don't you're an excess red right now. Don't need you. Please leave. Happy to happy to block. Goodbye. Even red five yeah. fighting spirit. I blocked with that card a lot because you know, they present um, you know, like a, a weird damage card that you get to like like a five power damage or four power damage or um, I especially like blocking with it into Kadachi Fi because you basically they attack you with the first if you're down they attack you with the first Kadachi you block the second one and then it gains you that point of life back that you didn't want to block the first Kadachi with. I don't know. Sure. I I I just block. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. I feel like I think that's the difference. Like the way I look at it is when I'm playing, my biggest goal is just to, like keep life totals close together and the. The best way to do that is by spending your action point every turn because like not spending your action point is like inherently kind of inefficient because your action point is like basically worth one value. That's why you have to pay a premium for go again effects. So like any turn I wasn't spending my action point, I think it's like it's going to happen sometimes, especially when you're playing a hero with no weapon that you can just activate. Like you're, you're going to have turns where you don't use your action point, but it is a small inefficiency every time you have a turn where you don't use your action point. And because of that, that's why I kind of prioritize the red so highly. Yeah, because it sounds like we're just playing the deck a little bit different, where you're just trying to get in more continuous damage in a shorter time frame of game overall, where I'm happy to go to like second cycle pretty often in Icelander, knowing like what stacks of cards are where and knowing when I'm going to be able to disrupt my opponent at the end game. Because most decks, if you go to second cycle, they're just significantly weaker at that point in the game than they are on the first cycle. And Icelander just getting more raw value out of her blues than other heroes do just makes her naturally better on second cycle. So between having a lower starting life total and knowing that I'd be better the longer the game goes, I was just blocking a lot. I, I blocked all the time. Yeah, I, I think. And really only swung the red attacks if like the math worked out that like I would take like, I think if my opponent presented like six plus damage on the turn i would be more inclined to block but like obviously on like the mopier turns i felt like the red cards were there just then just like punish them heavily for like stumbling at all or like when you had a channel like frigid down or you were able to disrupt them at a key point that's where the red cards really like were shining for me was just punishing when your opponent stumbled i didn't play them necessarily as just like that's 100 when i'm casting every time i draw them (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that fits more in line with like the traditional Icelander style of decks where they have like these some a lot of these arcane damage spells like Ice Bolt, Aether Hail, Freezing Point, all these like cards that are like less efficient than the attacks, but they're harder to like 
if you play them and your opponent's hand is awkward, it's harder for them to prevent some of the damage or block efficiently. Whereas like when I was on these attacks, that was my that was my plan A. I was just trying to hit them every turn. I was wanted to basically if we were going to second cycle, it was because they were wanting to they were choosing to make us go to second cycle, not because I was ever choosing to go to second cycle. I was always just like, I'm going to play all my attacks. And if we go to second cycle, then great, my deck's still strong. But that's because you're blocking a bunch and making us go to second cycle, if that makes sense. And you were able to consistently, obviously you were because you won the tournament, but like, it's just interesting to me that like that damage efficiency was enough to keep at parity with them in enough reasonable time frame in order to like still be able to end the game with storm striders at the end of the game. So uh, my intuition would just tell me that like, I get that, you know, two card, eight, very efficient or whatever, good damage, but when we're thinking about like Runeblade's natural turn cycles or like Oldheim's natural turn cycles, they're still swinging and presenting way more damage than eight damage a turn. Oldheim very rarely is having a more efficient turn cycle than two blocks. Isaac Crude. <laughs> Isaac Crude presents more than eight damage every turn. But yeah, I, right, I agree. Right, in general. but that's that's if they're not that's if they're not blocking. And then you could you still block some. You just I, I was very r- rarely blocking so much that I couldn't spend my action point. I usually just block with one or two cards. Hmm. Well, that's why people like me don't win tournaments. We couldn't close because we didn't just attack more. <laughs> I would say going forward, though, I would definitely like... So I said I would play Red Aetherhale again. I, I'd really like that card. Um, I would not play three Fate for Scene. I might play one just as the fourth defense reaction, but I think six total defense reactions were a little bit too low. And then at that point, I don't know if I would... Maybe blue. I, I I could give Blue Brother and Arms a little bit more of a chance. I didn't like it personally when I was playing it. But I could I could definitely see giving it uh, more time to shine in my games, and then freezing point would just be a cut for me. I would just play. I don't know if I would still play wounded bull, but freezing point needs to go. <laughs> yeah, that card was only good on like when you're going third cycle, all of your frost hexes are out, and you're doing like three for eight at minimum, or like three for like a bajillion once you've already given your opponent frost bites somehow on your turn or something like that. I don't know, like you. Um, play ice eternal on your turn and then you arsenal the freezing point that was left over and then you crack storm striders and freezing point like that's kind of how i was envisioning envisioning using the card and it never came up it was always just like a three for five that like stripped a card within city's chill if if i was ever casting it most of the time i was just like oh look at that freezing point block yeah that's i Again, I started with Freezing Point in the deck when I was starting to switch to the attacks, and I, every time I drew Freezing Point, I was blocking with it. I started boarding it out, and I'm like, when do I actually want this thing? This is always just a red block three with no text, or or a three for five that sucks. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, then I just eventually I cut it for Wounded Bull, and we started punching him. That makes sense. Or it might have been E-Strike. I think I might have had Wounded Bull before E-Strike. And then I think the last card we could talk about here that's a big difference is you're not playing any Command and Conquers. You're playing all these red attacks, all of these hyper-efficient cards, no Command and Conquers. Command and Conquer wasn't your seventh popper over yellow Find All's Fighting Spirit? <laughs> no, I think yellow Find All's is better into Dromai because the one life you gain when you pop actually matters. And I don't think the threatening to destroy the arsenal is super relevant. I strongly Dromai. disagree. Well, and then the other reason I don't like Command and Conquer is it's two cards for six, which is not particularly efficient compared to like Wounded Bull or Fighting Dust Fighting Spirit, where there's two cards for eight. You get quite a bit less out of Command and Conquer. And in general, when I'm playing this deck, I'm 
very heavily relying on my ability to disrupt my opponent on their turn to kind of mess up their turns and weaken their turns. And I don't, I'd rather have raw value on my attacks because my opponent is already encouraged to block with hands that are easily disrupted, if that makes sense. Yeah, if your opponent hand is bad, then they're going to be easily disrupted. But if their hand is good, then they're not going to want to block anyways. Well, a lot of good hands is like a blue and then three resources of things to spend, right? Like a good five hand is like a blue plus mounting anger plus a zero cost plus sword plus Phoenix Flame plus snatch at the end or, or lava burst or something, right? Yeah. So like, but threatening that arsenal card makes their hands more easily disruptable because they're they're either going to have to block two cards to keep their arsenal, but they're just going to be able to be disrupted more easily because they just can't have five cards. Well, like. Good two-card hands are generally, like, pretty hard to disrupt. Like, how do you disrupt blue plus Wounded Bull? Or <laughs> uh, just E-Strike, tuck a card for seven. Like, Yeah, but of- that's not the way that the vast majority of decks in the format operate. I, I, I agree against those decks that are doing that stuff, that normally then Command & Conquer is not at its best. But I'm talking about, like, the Rune Blades against... Like, I think Command & Conquer is very good against Fi. The decks that like want to play the five card hands, Command and Conquer makes it significantly easier to disrupt and mitigate those decks like ceilings at that point, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. And I think like that's kind of why their ice veins there, because it's like both efficient and disruptive. Yeah, but I you think. only have six of those. <laughs> sure. I, I think I I would probably look at yellow aether ice vein over command and conquer if I was just looking for another action point spender that was disruptive. But I think like a couple of things that I was doing differently than more traditional ice centers is like I'd leave my blue in arsenal longer because I didn't want to play it, or I'd leave a red in arsenal, which makes fusing Aether Ice Vein a pretty real cost because then that blue that you fuse is just worth two damage when you pitch it for ones because we can't because you can't always arsenal it. If that makes sense. I think like in the end, I do think yellow Aether Ice Vein might maybe should be in the list. And after the tournament, I I would not claim my list was perfect. I don't I don't know what the perfect list is. I would play it if I did. I think it's like I was happy with my deck, and I was happy with what basically we came up with with the l- limited prep time there was for working on it. But it wouldn't surprise me if there's supposed to be some number of aether ice, yellow aether ice veins. I think the card is strong, and I could see CNC being a better popper than yellow fiendals against Romai because they're both generally six. I think yellow aether ice vein is a reasonable choice, and there are some issues with it. Like if your arsenal isn't open when you want to play it, then you're Ice fusion card just turns into two damage, which is reasonably below rate. But I think I think the card's solid. I think it's uh, reasonable, and I think that it's possible that it should be have. Oh, I was pretty happy to do that opposite. most of the time. I know you said it's below rate, but like that means there's usually a key or a critical blue that I know is going to be maximally disruptive, like a hyperthermia. Like that usually happen when like there's a hyperthermia or. Um, a channel like Frigid that I didn't want to pitch on the prior turn or play on the prior turn cycle because my opponent's turn was already mopey. Um, or another Aether Ice. I, there's, if that happens, that means there's already a card that I would consider to be a premium blue card that I know is going to steal me like either a lot of value or is going to be critically important for me in the matchup. And at that point, then I'm valuing. So I think I'm net ahead, even though I'm being slightly inefficient on that turn cycle, I think I'm going to be maximally efficient and disruptive on the next turn cycle, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think I think that does make sense. I think part of that is uh, just your 
tendency to not arsenal random red attacks whereas i'm just like yeah sometimes there's just a wounded bull sitting in my arsenal for three <laughs> turns until i get a good chance to use it no i'm like there's a there's an insidious chill in my arsenal i just didn't have a good chance to set it up yet so i want to set up this insidious chill after i get through this first insidious chill and my opponent's not going to have functional hands once you get two insidious chills down like stacking that card it's so gross and one of my favorite play patterns is that like once you have an insidious chill and an amulet device you let the insidious chill trigger resolve first and then like depending on like what's happening or the circumstance of the game you could either choose to like keep your amulet device or like let them ab or like your opponent's like hmm i don't want to ab this i really like my hand not do anything and you're like oh you really like your hand amulet device you please please give me some of that hand you like a lot I, I I was just kidding before. I actually meant to tax you more. <laughs> yeah, and unless I'm going for lethal, I almost never amulet device before the card resolves. I always just like see what the result is, and then I'm like, oh, this seems like a good spot to amulet device, and then I pop it afterwards. Yeah, obviously that's different if you're like trying to ice eternal for lethal, but yeah, the- for the most part. Amulet device flexibility that you just don't have to use it the first time you fuse a card is very nice. Yeah, the more I played the deck, the more I'm like, I think amulet device is like the secret MVP of Icelander, where it's just like. Because it gives you the insidious chill effect, but you don't have to pay the three resources for it. It's just zero cost card that you can put in your arsenal, give your opponent a frostbite, then efficiently waning moon or do whatever you want with your resources at that point. And, or if you are just going to attack with one of your attacks, you can just play it first and then attack with one of your attacks. It's just like, it's, I wish I could just play like nine of that card. It's just, even though it doesn't block, it's just everything Isolator wants to be doing anyways. I don't know if I'd go to nine copies, but I would definitely play the fourth copy if I could. And then one other thing that's really nice about it, like, so it's a zero cost from Arsenal that you can give them a Frostbite. If you don't want a Waiting Moon, you can still just give them the Frostbite and you don't have to worry about, like, wasting resources because you can just play it. Right. And then other times, it also, since it costs zero, it works really nicely with Blue Brother in Arms too, which you can play it, then use Blue Brother in Arms and also Swing Waiting Moon. So it just, I think Amulet Device is one of the best cards in the deck. Yeah. One of the best. One of the best, or probably the best ice blue, honestly. I, I, yeah, I, I would agree with you at this point. Okay. And then I guess the, the very, very last thing we can talk about is like the cards that didn't make either of our less lists, like blue Arctic Incarceration, where a lot of people love that card. So many people are like, you don't have blue Arctic Incarceration? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't, it never did much for me. I don't know. Yeah. I think the biggest argument for blue Arctic Incarceration is its interaction with how strong it is when you have three Frost Texas in play. It turns into, a one card six basically. I when you never have three had frost three frost taxes in play over the course of the entire weekend. Even when I was like going for maximum combo, like two is enough to close out a game. Three just seems completely superfluous to me. And I don't know how you're having the time to both set up these like insidious chills and frost taxes all the time in the game because they're just, they're even though they, you can play them on your opponent's turn or whatever, they're still clunky. You know, I I agree hundred percent. That's I never have three frost taxes in play. And I think the entire weekend, I had two Frost Hexes in play in the Ice Center Mirror and maybe against one Oldheim opponent, but almost never do I have that many Frost Hexes in play. And also when you get to that point, cards like Cold Snap and Polar Blast do something very similar where you can play a Cold Snap or a Polar Blast from Arsenal and give your opponent one Frostbite and have two resources floating. The blue that you pitch to play, it replaces itself. And then you can use those two resources left to winning win them for three so you're still getting one frostbite plus three damage which when you have three frost axes is six damage the same way that our dig incarceration gets you six damage so i think like 
these cards are much better when you don't have all the frost hexes in play. And then when you do have the frost hexes in play, they're almost just as good. So, And you're so much more incentivized to play the Insidious Chill than you are the Frost Hexes when you draw them in the same hand, because Frost Hex blocks for three. So you want, like, I'm just like, oh, this card blocks for three? This one's the one that's getting blocked with then. I'm going to play the Insidious Chill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And I think Insidious Chill almost always gets you more value, if even if you just, like, it's you're, you're going first, it's turn zero, and you have both in your hand. I almost always would pick the Insidious Chill, because that one's, like, almost always going to get two and a half to three cards of value. And setting up the first Frost Hex is like a pain. Like the first Frost, frost Hex has like such a minimal impact to the game, it feels like. The second one starts feeling good. And then obviously if you somehow get the third one, it's just that that's when like the card shines. But like the fact that like you're, the first one is so unimpactful most of the time that like it almost discourages you from even playing the first one in a lot of turn cycles. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. The first one usually doesn't get that much damage because you aren't, when you have the one frost hex in play, it's not worth it to like try to time your frost bites to get the one damage out of them. But when you get two and three, like suddenly it's like, when you have three frost hex in play, it's suddenly super efficient to cast these ice eternals and stuff to give them a bunch of frost bites. But when you have one, ice eternal is still not a particularly efficient card. Okay. Anything else about Icelander you want to talk about before we wrap things up here, Michael? I love how big of a meme Wounded Bull became. Yeah, you destroyed Talishar. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I've heard trying to play on Talishar today. It's just all Wounded Bull Icelanders. But yeah, that's all. Any closing thoughts from you? Oh, you asked me the question. You did it. I was about to say, I don't have any closing thoughts on Icelander either. But thank you, Michael. But you, you, asked, you did it. That was my, that was, uh, that will pivot now into the final closing thing, which is so many people came up to us over the weekend and said they liked the podcast and... That was amazing. Like that was really cool. Uh, thank you very much to everybody. Like it was started. It's a, at the start of the weekend. Like we got like a couple compliments on Friday before the tournament started. I was like, oh, that'll probably be all we get. And so I took down like the names of like Kyle and let's see, I, ha- I have them around here. I send you a lot of messages on Discord, Michael. Yeah, we we talk a lot. That's crazy. Oh, no. It's like we like each other or something. <laughs> and I, now I'm asking you for skull crushers. I went too far. Hold on. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, Sebastian, uh, Kyle, and Fino were the first three. So they, they're, they're and Tom and Tom. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, we met Tom. Uh, was the first one, and past that, it just got a little overwhelming, uh, to be honest. But in a good way, in a completely good way that I am incredibly appreciative for, and really is super motivating to keep making the podcast. Yeah, you last week you were all down. People didn't talk to you and stuff, and then this. That this weekend everyone delivered it was it was great and then you crushed the calling too yeah it's a good weekend i guess i didn't talk about that but maybe next week we'll talk about mental health a little bit more because that was the most commented thing on the last week's cast was that like you know roger you know i really you know identify with what you're talking about about not feeling good enough or whatever and i think it's something that we should talk about at some point on the cast is like mental health and managing all that stuff especially now that even despite my uh you know, good performance in a tournament. I feel good about my ability to play Flesh and Blood. I'm just completely fucking burned out on this game at the moment, just speaking honestly, and I'm not going to Worlds. Like, I am so unmotivated to, like, prepare for another, like, high-level major tournament at this point in time in my life, just between everything else that I have going on, that I just, I just, I'm I'm ready for uh, the wintertime fat break already. So, uh, spoiler, I will not be at Worlds. 
so sad. There are more important things than life and flesh and blood sometimes. I won't argue with that. All right. Ready to close this out? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. And next time you're playing Flesh and Blood, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for listening.